This is the Education Gap Fly Show. It was our first time back in the office. I've never seen Checkers smile so much. What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli at the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. Here at the Education Gap Fly Show and online at FordhamInstitute.org. And now, please welcome my special guest for this week, Morgan Polakoff. Morgan, welcome back to the show. Thank you very much. Always a pleasure. And joining us, as always, my co-host, David Griffith. Hey, Mike. Good to see your face again. Yes, indeed. Well, for those of you that somehow don't know, Morgan is an associate professor of education at the University of Southern California, Rossier School of Education. Did I say that right? Is it Rossier? Rossier? I've never known. It's, it's Rossier. Believe it, I've been saying it wrong for a decade, So, but it's Rossier. <laughs> All right. Now we know. And most pertinent to this conversation, he is the author of a new book. It is called Beyond Standards, The Fragmentation of Education Governance and the Promise of Curriculum Reform. Woo! That's a long title, or at least subtitle there, Morgan. How's the book doing? Do we have a sense yet? Is it setting records? Is Jeff Bezos getting rich off it? Well, I'll say I'm no Ibram Kendi in terms of books. I I think it's doing okay. You know, I mean, I think... It was meant to be a provocative argument that I think is to get some people talking. And so I think it's reaching some of the audiences that I want, which are school district leaders and folks in state departments of education. All right. Well, let's talk about those provocative arguments in Ed Reform Update. All right, Morgan. Well, this is a book I know well. I actually blurbed it, which I was happy to do. And in many ways, we already had a debate on some of these topics. You and I and Tom Loveless had a debate in the pages of Education Next, where you kind of had a condensed version of this argument that you have in here. That debate was explicitly about the Common Core, and that is kind of the backdrop for this book, right? So tell us, what are the major arguments that you're making? here? Sure. I mean, the major argument that I make is that the standards movement has pretty much been a failure, that it hasn't achieved its goals in terms of raising student achievement or narrowing achievement gaps. And not just that it has been, but that it will continue to be, that really tinkering with the reform by tweaking the standards, by updating the tests, by tweaking accountability systems, that those things aren't going to result in better standards implementation are not on the scale that's really needed to drive instruction. And so if we want to improve instruction at scale, we have to pursue other kinds of reforms. And so I spend a lot of the book diagnosing what I see as the real drivers of the failure of standards, and then using those diagnoses to talk about what are some possible, more promising approaches, starting with really curriculum materials and a more muscular state role in curriculum reform. All right. Well, first of all, you just heard our heart a little bit, maybe a lot. Poor David, you know, just last week publishes an enormous new report on state history and civic standards. And so, ouch, ouch, Morgan, make it sound like these things don't matter. Well, look, here's how I would flip this question. You are making a a distinction between standards-based reform and curriculum reform. I think those of us at Fordham would say, look, that curriculum reform is part of standards-based reform. Or in other words, The reason that we now have this discussion about curriculum reform, that we've got better instructional materials than we used to have in the core subjects, is because of the Common Core standards. I mean, they were necessary, but not sufficient. Is that fair? We're sort of like arguing about definitions, but we're both saying like, you're not saying that we could 
at this point, ditch the common core standards and ditch the assessments and everything's going to be just fine. That's correct. No, I mean, I think that the argument isn't that we should, as you say, get rid of standards or something like that. I think the argument rather is that unless we get quite a bit more assertive with actual day-to-day instruction, which really means curriculum materials and, and strong district leadership and strong state leadership, that standards can't do the job because they're too complicated, they're too hard to understand, they're too hard to implement. I don't think we would disagree with that, although I'll come back on some of them. So let's be clear that you are saying, you know, which is now, I think, has become a little bit more conventional wisdom, is that the key way to drive change at the local level is curriculum reform. Ten years ago, the idea was it was going to be teacher effectiveness, right? That we, we were going to figure out a way to get a different kind of person into the classroom or help them be more effective, evaluate their effectiveness and sticks and carrots. Are we done with that? Is curriculum, it's more about the tools versus the people? What do you think about that? Well, I don't see those two kinds of policy reforms as really being in tension with one another. In many ways, I think curriculum reform can support better teacher evaluation because I think one of the challenges of evaluating teachers in a situation where you've got every teacher teaching a different curriculum is you have to go with evaluation on these highly general kinds of practices where you can really narrow in on instructional quality when teachers are more teaching the same thing. So I don't view them as conflicting. I would continue to support some form of teacher evaluation, you know, in both formative and summative ways. But I do think that clearly the reform community has moved on and sort of the reform agenda has moved on from that. And I think that curriculum materials are getting a fair amount of attention right now. But as I think you've also talked about, and we're all seeing, there's just kind of a little bit of inertia right now in the reform community. There's not really any big new ideas happening. And so I just don't think there's as much enthusiasm for like a big federal role right now, other than kind of dumping money on schools and districts. It'll be interesting to see, you know, say if as the ARP funds get spent, like, you know, what is the actual Biden reform agenda in schools? Like, or is there one? And do these ARP funds get spent on curriculum? That'd be a great outcome, although not super hopeful. All right. So this muscular approach you'd like to see states use, what does that look like? Well, I think, you know, the clearest example is certainly Louisiana. And I talk at length about Louisiana in the book. And Rand has done some research on their approach. But it involves things like, you know, rather than just putting out a list of materials that are approved, Louisiana really strongly incentivizes districts to adopt, you know, from just a a small list of approved materials, what they call tier one materials, then Louisiana actually provides professional development on those materials. In the case of English language arts, when they realized that there wasn't a set of materials that they really liked so much, that they created their own materials and that they have revised those materials over time. They're called the Louisiana Guidebooks. And something like three quarters of Louisiana districts use those materials. And it's just it just states saying, you know, yes, there's still local control over curriculum choice, but we're really going to direct you districts to make good decisions and then support you to implement them well, rather than, again, leaving every district up to its own devices to figure these things out. Yeah. And and in a very red state in the South, no less, right? Absolutely. 
And there are blue states that are also doing this too. Rhode Island is also moving in some of these same directions. And so I don't think that there's something inherently red state or blue state about this. I mean, there are red states that are very local control and there are blue states that are very local control and vice versa. So I think that leaders who care about education, especially state leaders, can see that the State Department of Education can and should play a bigger role in driving instructional improvement than I think it is in many places. David, what you think? Well, I'm not sure what to think. Let me push on a couple points, and I'm, I'll be curious to get Morgan's reaction. One thing that struck me was the comment that teaching excellence isn't necessarily in tension with a muscular approach to curriculum and standards, right? And so I guess I'm just curious to know why you think that, what sort of evidence we have, because one of my biggest worries, to be frank, is that really high-performing people they're often creative, right? They value autonomy, right? And I do worry a little bit that if we get too prescriptive, you know, that teachers won't like it, basically, right? That will drive people who've been doing a great job out of the profession. Having said that, that's not really a, a data-based worry, right? It probably reflects my own, the way I work as much as anything else. Yeah. Let's start with that, David. All right. Yeah, so let's start with that. That is always the argument, right, Morgan, is that it's going to be prescriptive. Teachers are going to hate it. You know, we're not valuing their professional autonomy. Yeah. And I mean, I think that, listen, there's clearly a sweet spot. I'm not, and I make clear in the book, you know, I'm not arguing that we should have scripting, although I think in a lot of classrooms, scripting would be better than what kids are otherwise getting, but that's not what I'm arguing for. I think that if you talk to teachers, and I report in the book about some interviews that we did with teachers, teachers will almost universally say that they want a good core curriculum as a backbone. They also want, of course, the professional autonomy to modify and supplement those materials. But I think that there are ways to build in, you know, what I call like collaborative structures in school districts that both provide teachers with good core materials, expect those core materials to be the foundation of the instruction, and also allow teachers to work, especially collaboratively, to supplement or modify those materials in ways that, you know, maybe make them more appropriate for their students, raise or lower the level as needed. And I think teachers appreciate that because I think that, yes, there are some teachers who love to create their own curriculum from scratch. I don't think that's all teachers. I think that for a lot of teachers, that is a lot of burden and it costs money and time. And I think that for most teachers, they would like to have something really good to start. Now, you know, Morgan, when, when you read the book, you do get this impression. You're not a fan of the fact that we've got all these tiny little school districts out there, right? In California, it's about a thousand, right? I mean, are you saying that, you know, what you really want is to get, you know, some major move towards consolidation or, you know, much bigger districts in order to have more instructional capacity? I mean, is that necessary? Because frankly, you know, my own view, I, I, I wouldn't mind that myself, but it's not, it's never going to happen, right? It's just not in the cards politically, you know, with the, all the, the efforts in the past about, you know, let's kill all the school boards and let's, I just don't know how you get from here to there. I mean, listen, I agree with everything that you just said. I, I think it will be good in some ways, but I also understand the politics of it. There was originally going to be a chapter in the book about politics and like, I ended up taking that out. You know, our current politics is just so messed up that, and there's all kinds of, right, entrenched interests who want to keep the current system. But I do think that there are legitimate arguments to be had about the role of small school districts, in particular, in perpetuating various forms of inequality, right? So 
the sort of number one driver of segregation is school district boundaries. And we just allow that to happen. And in fact, the courts have said that you can't, you know, move kids across school district boundaries. So if we are serious about this, the, the idea of desegregation, we would have to address that issue. And I think that there are other ways in which really small districts, you know, often cause more problems than they solve. But I also, of course, agree with you that there's not like there's some big desire among people to consolidate small districts. People like their small districts, right? And so just because I, the pointy-headed pundit, say that they shouldn't doesn't mean that that that's going to happen. Right. And so if we're going to have those small districts, and again, we're not just talking about rural ones, but we're talking about in metropolitan areas, right? Yeah. Sure, you know, the DC metro area, you know, has six or seven big districts serving, you know, hundreds of thousands of kids. You go to other metro areas and it's, you know, dozens, if not hundreds. That's just for idiosyncratic historical reasons. But if we're stuck with them, then your argument is then the states need to step it up and take on some of those roles that if, if you had bigger districts with bigger curriculum departments, more capacity, they potentially do. Yeah. And I think that there's another example that's happening right now, right? Like we're having this debate about whether school districts should be offering online options for Mm -hmm. kids, right? And in the same exact way, I think personally, it's wacky for a bunch of individual districts to be creating their own online options. I think that's going to be extremely burdensome for the districts and also result in lower quality. Whereas a more muscular state Department of Education could say, you know, we're really going to centralize this. We're going to have one online state school that I think can, you know, can deliver high quality instruction that uses a good online curriculum. And, and that solves, I think, several problems simultaneously. And, and I think, you know, that's just another example of the way that the state, which really has the constitutional authority for providing education, can p- sort of profitably be involved in, in ensuring quality. All right. Bottom line, go to the gym, state, go to the gym, get yeah. muscular. Get big. Sorry, David, I keep cutting you off. Just more nerdy questions, Mike. All right. Well, we are out of time for that one, though. Hey, people should check out the book. (laughs) Even though it may not fly off the shelves, it certainly makes for good reading. And for those of uh, policy wonks listening to this show, you'll get a lot out of it. So again, it's called Beyond Standards, The Fragmentation of Education Governance and the Promise of Curriculum Reform. Morgan Polakoff. Morgan, thanks for being on the show. Hope you come back sometime soon. Thank you. And thanks for blurbing. All right, and now it's time for everyone's favorite, Amber's Research Minute. Amber, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Mike. You know, for our listeners, Amber, David, and I did something crazy last week. We got to see each other in person. It was nice, too. It was nice seeing you guys. Oh, you sound surprised. Well, I'm just saying, you know, I I actually enjoyed being in the office even more than I anticipated. That's all. I will say it was our first time back in the office. It was like a family reunion. There was hugging. There was, I almost hugged our new intern that I hadn't met before. I mean, it was. (laughs) I've never seen Checker smile so much, Mike. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. He's not known as a smiler. Well, there you go. It, It was great. Now, I don't know. That, that was the first time back in the office. Let's see, on the second time back in the office, if right. we all are quite as enthusiastic. Oh, right, we're, right. We're, we're trying this one day a week, all of us in at the same day, as kind of see if we can learn how to talk to each other again and, uh, and go from there, right? And they say think tank jobs are cushy. I know. What is this? Hey, hey, believe me, we have a very heavy email culture 
as people. That is true. <laughs> that is true. All right, Amber, what you got for us this week? We have a new study that examines the effect of providing free meals to students on their perceptions of school climate and their participation in free lunch. So I hadn't seen anything like this and I thought it was super interesting. Prior research has shown that there's often a stigma attached to receiving free and reduced price lunch, in part because it's attached to a visible sign of poverty. The report's got this little section where it talks about how in some schools, kids on reduced price lunch who don't come to school with any lunch money often have their hot meal replaced with a PBJ on the spot, which seems a little, little rough or they're allowed to work off their debt by cleaning the cafeteria, which also seems nuts to me. But I hearken back to my time in schools, and I do remember that the kids on FRL had this card or number entered by the cafeteria cashier, so other kids did know that they were on reduced price lunch. So I don't, uh, I think the stigma idea has some, some merit. So with this context in mind, in New York City between 2010 and 2017, about 500 schools adopted universal free meals, or UFM, for the very first time. Just so you know, breakfast in New York City has been free for all kids since 2004. So we're talking about lunch here. Analysts use a panel of data from grades 6 through 12 students for five years, 2013 through 2017. It includes various demographic data matched to individual responses to the New York City Annual School Environment Survey. The survey gets a lot of mileage. A lot of analysts use this environment survey in New York City. Ask the kids a variety of questions about school safety, bullying, and fighting, among other areas. The analysts use a difference in differences design with student fixed effects. It exploits the staggered exposure to UFM since schools adopted UFM at various times across the study span. Because students who ever attended a UFM school are different from those who never did, the sample includes middle and high schoolers who attended a UFM school at least once in the study period. Students are compared to themselves over time as well as within school. Last little bit of methodology before I get into the findings. Student eligibility for free and reduced price lunch changes. Students are classified as always, sometimes, or never poor based on their eligibility in the non-UFM years. Always poor means they are consistently eligible in the non-UFM years. Sometimes poor means they're observed as eligible in one year and not another. And never poor means they are never eligible in the non-UFM years. Key findings. In terms of the overall results, meaning students from all poverty designations and participation levels, UFM improved student perceptions of bullying, fighting, and safety outside of the school. Specifically, UFM improves bullying by 2.5 percentage points, which equates to about 2,500 students. Fighting improves by 3.3 percentage points and safety outside by 2.3 percentage points. However, no effect on perceptions of respect. I don't know if that's between students or teachers and, and students and nothing on safety in class or safety inside, just the safety outside. In the aggregate, UFM does not affect school meal participation rates, but when they dig into these um, different subgroups, among sometimes and never poor students, in other words, those are the kids with some history of paying for meals, UFM increases their lunch participation. It also increases participation for students for whom meals were always free, but they did not participate in prior years. 
So those are known as the poor non-participants. So they eat lunch when the meals are universally free. In other words, consistently poor students change their participation without being subject to any price changes, which supports the theory that factors beyond the price of food, such as a stigma, contributed to their participation decision. Who did we get all that? I got some of it. <laughs> I have some questions. Yeah. So help us understand the mechanisms there or the positive mechanisms. What do they think is happening? They think that the kids are no longer being visually stigmatized. You don't have your hot meal exchange for a PBJ. You don't have to do various tasks around the school when you don't have your money. And at least from my experience, they had a different card. I mean, David, I don't know about in your school, but the schools that I've been in, they have a different card that they use to get to get their meals. Yeah. So connect that to the whole inside of school, outside of school bit, because that was the part I was having trouble. Yeah, I know. I didn't quite get that either, because you would think that they would have seen an inside school safety boost, because obviously the kids are seeing this in the cafeteria, but they only saw the outside school safety increase. I'm not Hmm. sure what's going on there either. Yeah. Now, it's a little perplexing. We also just be curious about sort of the, the return on investment here. I mean, look, I, no doubt we want kids who are poor and would not otherwise be having lunch to eat lunch. And so right. this is good if they're getting more kids to eat lunch. It just seems like with technology, there could be other ways to make that happen, you know, to basically, uh, I, I don't know, to, to reduce these barriers to participation without necessarily giving free lunch to kids who don't need it. Now, there may be schools where, you know, if you're talking about 90% of the kids are eligible. And so it's just easier administratively. It's and not that expensive to give the other 10% free lunch right. to, I mean, fine. Right. Um, but it could be real money. Right. And I have to say as a conservative, we generally don't like the idea of giving people a free lunch. Free you don't lunch. Need it. it is literally a free lunch, Mike. It's a dollar. <laughs> just so you know, it's a dollar and 75 cents apparently for kids who aren't paying. So um, I don't know. They, they really yeah, got pretty- the great trying to do the math here right that's like okay thousand bucks a year or something like that right i mean you're right mike yeah yeah it's real money i've thought about this in our schools i mean in the pre-covid years you know my sons would sometimes buy lunch and it was ridiculous how inexpensive it was i mean like two bucks or something and so clearly their lunches were getting subsidized i can't imagine it that's all it really now granted we're not talking about high quality food here but uh but still you know I should not be getting my kids' lunches subsidized by other taxpayers. So something weird is going on. That's all. I mean, I think we need to look at this by cost benefit. And there's got to be ways to make it (laughs) visible to everybody about who's paying and who's not at the checkout line. That's just not how it's working. Right. Not make it visible. Right. Yeah. I will say, I do think stigma isn't the only possibility here, right? My math was off, by the way, but... Moving on. Is it possible it's a paperwork thing too? Or do you think that's, I mean, do you Mm -hmm. think that's unlikely? I feel like that ought to be a fairly low lift, right? Administratively. Right. Although they made a big deal out of, you know, this is staggered because of administrative burden is one of the many things that, you know, took longer for other schools to to get in on it. All right. And right. Back to David's math. We're talking about a a little more than a dollar a day or $2 a day. We're talking about several hundred dollars a year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the national research team at work there. <laughs> you don't have Excel or, or stat in front of you. And this is I know. I know. I'm useless without my computer. 
I do think that stigma, right, is one of those things that possibly researchers in ivory towers or think tanks, right, we may underestimate it. It's the sort of thing that it's probably not brought up often enough when we talk about targeted programs. That doesn't necessarily mean the program should be universal, but I think it probably isn't incorporated enough into the way we design these programs. Well, yeah, I mean, we definitely had the, the cheese sandwich back in the day, you know, and, and the kid without the money or got the, got the cheese sandwich. So um, I don't know how pervasive that is now, but but yeah, you, you knew if they were, didn't bring their, if they were on reduced price lunch and didn't bring their money. I'm trying to think, you know, how transparent class is to kids these days in general. Of course, it's a weird question to ask during COVID, right? In my day, when I'm thinking back, everybody knew who the rich kids were. Their clothing. Yeah, their cars. I don't mean to downplay it, right? But it is, it is kind of a question, right? Of like, how much of this is just obvious and transparent to kids, we tend to assume that they're idiots, right? But in real life, people are extremely sensitive to these things, right? You look at someone and you you think you know at least a great deal of things about them. Yeah, I don't know. It's hard to say. All right, so, we'll finish there. I love it. That's a classic David statement. It's hard to say. Hard to say. Yeah, that'll be on my headstone, you know? <laughs> <laughs> all right, thank you, Amber. Interesting stuff. That is all the time we've got for this week. So until next week. I'm David Griffith. I'm Michael Shirley, the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, signing off. The Education Gapfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at FordhamInstitute.org.